subscript for Psalm 144 is a king's prayer or uh, King David's prayer, and that's exactly what it is. Sometimes in looking at these psalms in preparation for Wednesday night and just preaching psalms in general, it's a little bit like preaching from the songbook. Some of these truths are so simple, so elementary, there's really not a lot of exposition required. Um, I have nothing profound to say tonight about Psalm 144. And sometimes I can feel a little foolish in preparation, and then I'm reminded at how often it's the simple truths of God's Word that move my heart the most, and, and the things that, that really are elementary attributes of God's character um, that I rely on the most. The, the Lordship of Jesus over my life, I think, is the single most comforting truth in the scriptures that no matter what happens in my life that God is in control and he'll turn those events even when they're intended for bad for good in my life and for the glory of his name that I think of that every day and that's that's a that's Christian faith 101 that's Bible 101 so I hope as we work through some some of the simple truths that David uh, expresses in Psalm 144 that you'll be refreshed and encouraged renewed and readied for the work that God has for you. Let, let's begin by reading uh, Psalm 144, beginning verse number one. David said, May the Lord my rock be praised, who trains my hands for battle and my fingers for warfare. He is my faithful love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer. He is my shield and I take refuge in him. He subdues my people under me. Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Lord, part your heavens and come down. Touch the mountains and they will smoke. Flash your lightning and scatter the foe. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down from heaven. Rescue me from deep water and set me free from the grasp of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hands are deceptive. God, I will sing a new song to you. I will play on a ten-stringed harp for you, the one who gives victory to kings, who frees his servant David from the deadly sword. Set me free and rescue me from the grasp of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hands are deceptive. Then our sons will be like plants, nurtured, in their youth, our daughters like corner pillars that are carved in the palace style. Our storehouses will be full, supplying all kinds of produce. Our flocks will increase by thousands and tens of thousands in our open fields. Our cattle will be well fed. There'll be no breach in the walls, no going into captivity, and no cry of lament in our public squares. Happier are the people with such blessings. Happy are the people whose God is Yahweh. Here, David just prays, God help me. It may be helpful to think about David's prayer as the prayer of a leader. Here it is a king praying, but there are qualities or uh, aspects of what David prays that I think are relevant for any person that finds themselves in a position of, of leadership. Um, there, there are certain parts of the prayer that resonate specifically with me as a leader. And, and perhaps as we study tonight, you'll find that to be the case for you as a leader in your own right. And there are five things that I want us to observe uh, about the nature of David's prayer. What, what happens or 
um, the component parts of a leader's prayer. When a leader prays, first I want you to note that, that, he, that he must pray, he, he does pray with confidence. Look at verses 1 and 2. May the Lord, my rock, be praised, who trains my hands for battle and my fingers for warfare. He is my faithful love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer. He is my shield and I take refuge in him. He subdues my people under me. There are a, a number of observations made here, but, but there is a, a four-time repetition of the idea of God's faithfulness to David. You're my faithful love, you're my refuge, you are my rock, you are my stronghold, you are my shield. David is repeating uh, the confidence that he has in God. His confidence in leadership is rooted in his confidence in God. And it gives us some insight as to where that comes from, personal experiences that have reinforced this uh, confidence that he has in the ability of God to see it through, to see him through. He says in verse 1, May the Lord my rock be praised who trains my hands for battle and my fingers for warfare. There's some detail there in the Hebrew text suggesting that David is perhaps even thinking back on his own preparation for battle, on his own uh, equipping for warfare. David is a great warrior. I don't know that we think as much as perhaps we ought to about David's ability as a general, as a military leader. Uh, but but he, he ultimately leads Israel to conquer the promised land. The boundaries of Israel as a nation were only broader during the time of his son Solomon uh, than they were in the time of, of David's kingship. Even when David is uh, sort of in exile, when he's running for his life from Saul, he gathers a, a band of brigands and outlaws around him, and those men become his right-hand men, and David is victorious on the field of battle even when the odds are stacked greatly against him it, it wasn't just that David in the valley against Goliath the Philistine giant that he was uh, strong or equipped or empowered there that there was an ability that God endowed David with that followed him over the course of his life until the time of David the city of Jerusalem was under Moabite control Jebusite control David came and conquered the city, and the city of Jerusalem, once Salem, now became the holy city, the place that would, in the mind of Israelites, and often in our mind, in symbolic ways, be the home of our God and our Father. David has been called to a place of leadership, and he has observed by his own personal experience that just as God has called him to that particular place for that particular season, he has equipped him to do what is necessary within the context of that ministry. Now, there's encouragement there for all of us, that just as God has called you to a specific responsibility or a particular ministry, a role that you are serving, in light of what we talked about Sunday morning, every member having a responsibility, a role to be of service within the body of Christ. We can rest confidently that God has equipped us to do what needs to be done in that particular ministry. One of the fun things um, about the last few months of serving here as pastor is discovering the challenges that lie ahead. 
And one of the fun things about discovering the challenges that lie ahead at Longview Point for the new preacher is that it, it, there is a real sense, at least on my part, this may prove to not be so true, but that the challenges are kind of where I'm at home, where I'm comfortable, in my wheelhouse. It's almost like God has something to do with it. You know what I mean? When God calls you to a particular ministry, when he puts you in your place of service, he's always faithful to give you the gifts and abilities that you need to responsibly discharge your duties in that particular area of ministry. David had experienced that himself. Now, there are seasons in David's life when we might look at David on the field of battle and say, well, here's a well-seasoned veteran. He has learned the tactics of uh, military advancement and, and what needs to be done on the field of battle. This is a learned skill. But then there are seasons in David li David's life like Goliath when it's clear that this is just someone that God has been pleased to use. And so often that's the case. It's, though, it's those opportunities that God uses most often to bring the, great, the greatest glory to his name. In verse 2 he says, He's my faithful love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and I take refuge in him. Listen to this last sentence. He subdues my people under me. He's speaking of his own people. The, the, the Lord had given, I think David is communicating here, the Lord had given David favor with his people. The thing about leadership, if you're here as a leader, you've observed this, you can bear a title, but until there are a people who are willing to follow after your leadership, you're really not a leader at all. David says, God has given me favor with those people I've been given charge over. In other words, David is leading and looking back and people are actually following after him. That is of God. Did you know that? And, and I, I think in the context of Christian ministry, especially Christian ministry in America, that's, that's, a, that's a real sign of, of divine favor in your ministry. If you are fortunate enough to have people in your, in your ministry, whether that's within your job or within the context of the church, it really makes no difference. If you're fortunate enough to have people who, who come under your leadership, that's a really remarkable thing. We, we're so bent on negativity and criticism and overanalyzing everything that we see anyone do. I'm, I'm the worst. Preachers are really the worst. Preachers can have a hard time listening to preaching because you're always thinking about the way that you might have done it or how it would be done differently. It's just the nature of who we are. We are a critical people bent on negativity. And David says that God has given me favor with the people. And he celebrates that. There's a confidence in that. Leadership is a really, really fragile thing. It can come quickly and it can go quickly. And David acknowledges that his, his position is a, is a position granted by the favor of God and the favor of God really alone. Now, how does he know this? Because he'd experienced disruptions in this favor with the people during the course of his leadership. If all you know of David is man after God's own heart, killed a giant in the valley, you really just know about this much of David's life. Because there was a season, there was a time in David's life when his son took his concubines up on the hill in the city of Jerusalem and defiled them before the people. When, when the people turned against David so much so 
that no longer was it Saul who was chasing David in the wilderness. But even after these great victories, David was east of the Jordan running for his life as Absalom sat upon the throne, Absalom sat on the throne in the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't always easy peasy for David, but God restored favor. David here celebrates that. What David is saying in essence is, God, I trust that what you've done in the past, you'll be pleased to do again. You've not withheld any good blessing in the past. Sort of what Paul says in Romans 8.31, how can he who gave his own son withhold any good necessary gift from his people? The sacrifice that God has made in giving us his son, Jesus Christ, ought to serve as the guarantee that he will freely give us all we ever ask or need as it suits his purpose and his plan for our life. A leader must pray with confidence. Secondly, he must pray with humility. He attributes, David attributes all of his good fortune in verses 1 and 2 to the hand of God's uh, providence. Then in verses 3 and 4, here's what David says. Lord, what is man that you take care for him? The son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. When you, when you think about the relative insignificance of our lives, it is an amazing thing that God cares about us. <laughs> I mean, we, we are such a sliver in time. The Bible uses the, the metaphor of of a vapor or we're a wisp of smoke we're here today and we're gone tomorrow and an eternal god in heaven who is ruler over all the universe would look down through time and space at us with such care that jesus says he knows the very hairs of our head it really is a remarkable thing now, I think if we're following here with the idea of, of what happens or how a leader prays, that there's unique perspective on the part of the leader, unique insight into how small and insignificant that we are. There, there's a, a feeling of loss of control that a leader has. I said this, talked about this a little bit on last Wednesday night. You know, we, we can make plans as a church, and I can make plans as a pastor and vision cast and do all those sorts of things, but ultimately, the leadership of the church is in the hands of God. It's a really helpless feeling. I, I, I told you last Wednesday, I just keep waiting to show up one Sunday, and no one's here. No one comes, you know? It's, it's, it's really, you know, I mean, no, no one forces you to come, you know what I mean? But, but, but you do. You, you're following the leadership of the Lord as God works in all of our lives. And, and so you feel like everything is out of your control. And in reality, everything is out of your control and in the hands of a good and, and faithful God. But it makes you feel so small, so small. There are very few things for me that make me feel smaller than that. Occasionally, you're in nature, you're in the turkey woods in the spring or somewhere out west. You're usually in a setting that you're unaccustomed to and and you see the mountain peaks, or you see the sunset, the glory of God that's told in the heavens and the earth, and you just feel really, really, really small. 
I think there are times when, when leading, you're given unique insight into our smallness. And, and David muses, Lord, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you think of him. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. We're a breath. We're a vapor. We're a wisp of smoke. And yet God loves us well. There is here the confession of, of weakness on the part of David. An acknowledgement that if anything profitable is to come from his life and leadership, it won't be about him. He knows that he is weak. But his strength and the stay for his soul is the knowledge that God is strong. Paul was really on to something when he said, in my weakness, you are strong. Your grace is sufficient for me. If you ever find yourself in a place where you just really know that you can't do what God has put before you, you're right where God would have you to be to do something remarkable for the glory of his name. So the leader prays with confidence. He prays with humility. Thirdly, he prays with wonder. This is touched on in verses 1 through 4, those verses that we just cited where David asked, how is it that you could look upon us that you, a great and faithful God, could care about the modest needs of, of mankind? But you see it again in verses 9 and 10. Look to verse 9. David says, God, I will sing a new song to you. I will play on a ten-stringed harp for you. The one who gives victory to kings, who frees his servant David from the deadly sword. He's acknowledging what God has done in his life again and then offering a song. He says, God, I, I worship you because of what you have done in my life. You are in charge over my life, and I give you all the thanks and the praise for that. Take just a second and, and reflect on the course of your life, where you, you were born, what your childhood looked like, the circumstances of all that, maybe decisions that you made, good and bad, along the way. And, and think about how God has brought you to this point, to this place, how he's been faithful to you, how he's made more out of your life than is reasonable to expect. David says, in light of all that you've done for me, God, I praise you, I worship you. Leaders pray with wonder at what God does. All of us should pray with wonder at what God does. With wonder at, at who God is. I said in, in the introduction tonight that sometimes it's the elementary attributes of God's character, the things that we just assume everyone understands that sometimes amaze me the most. Like the eternality of God, that he always was and he always will be. Now that's a basic I mean, that's who God is, and our children know that from their earliest years. It's among the first things that you learn about who God is. And yet not a soul in this room, with our combined hundreds of years of studying the Bible, can truly comprehend what it means to say that God has no beginning nor end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That's incredible, isn't it? If you'll spend time thinking about who God is, you will not help but be moved with awe and wonder at who he is and all that he's done. Number four, when the leader prays, he prays with sincerity. Again, in the vein of leadership, um, there, there are often urgent, pressing needs that arise that the leader must acknowledge are beyond his control. David is aware of those in his own life and leadership. In verses 5 and 8, he speaks of the power of God to move so quickly and to make such drastic change with incredible ease. 
In verse 5, the Bible says, Lord, part your heavens and come down. Touch the mountains and they will smoke. Flash your lightning and scatter the foe. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down from heaven. Rescue me from deep water and set me free from the grasp of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hands are deceptive. There seems to be some particular issue in David's life. He's not specific enough that we can know exactly what's happening at this uh, period in David's life, but there's a need. He mentions twice that there are foreigners who are out to get him. That's just sort of a generic way of making reference to his enemy, perhaps an alliance of foreign nations that have come together to oppose David. They have made accusations against him. They have worked deceptively. He uses that language twice in Psalm 144. He brings here before God a real issue in his life that has a measurable outcome. You see it again in verses 10 and 11. Look to verse 10. He speaks of God as the one who gives victory to kings, who frees his servant David from the deadly sword. And ask in verse 11 that God would set him free and rescue him from the grasp of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hands are again deceptive. In verses 12 through 14, he speaks with confidence of what things will be like should God choose to move and answer the prayer that David brings before him. But again, these are real measurable outcomes in David's life. Here's what I mean by that. This is not an ambiguous prayer, God bless me, and then amen. David is praying about a a, a significant and specific issue in his life that apart from the hand of God moving for his deliverance could be his end, will certainly be of detriment to the nation of Israel. And David says, God, show us favor and work on our behalf. Turn our fortunes by your good providence. He says, God, you have the ability. You could touch the mountains and they will smoke. You could flash your lightning and they would scatter. How often does God move miraculously on the part of Israel throughout? Here he says, God, here is this specific scenario, and I'm asking you to move on my behalf. I, I think that there are times when we pray specifically and then we quickly move away from that train of thought And then as God shows up in our life, we're forgetful about our prayers and how God has answered. I I would encourage you, if you can't think back uh, uh, across the last week or two weeks of ways that God has answered prayers that you've brought before him, that, that you at least make some effort at listing your prayer requests or journaling your prayer life. Not because I think that's necessary to a good prayer life, but it, it is helpful at looking back and reflecting on what God has done in your life. I'm not, a, I'm not a writer, like a handwriter. If I did, I wouldn't be able to go back and read it because my handwriting is not legible. But there were times throughout seminary training, and there have been a few times in ministry when I felt I needed the added accountability and focus that comes with journaling or uh, writing down my thoughts in prayer um, that, that I've been able to go back to and, and, and read through. And you would be astounded at the times that God is faithful to answer so specifically the request that you bring before him. It's just another one of those areas of our life where our busy schedules and the hustle and the bustle rob us of the ability of delighting in what God does in our life. Here, here David will know what the outcome is. He will know if God has shown him favor. Should God choose not to, he will fall by the sword, according to his estimation. 
there, there will be real difficulties in, in the land of Israel should God not move favorably on behalf of David and, and the armies of Israel. Real, measurable outcomes in your prayer life will produce a higher degree of genuineness or sincerity than perhaps you have enjoyed in times past. So why we pray best when we're under duress, when the diagnosis is not what we hoped it would be, um, when we find ourselves in the foxhole, so to speak, there's praying, and then there's praying. David is praying with sincerity here. Uh, fifth and lastly, he prays with expectation. This is just a, a, a more practical way of saying that he prays with faith. There, there's a real expectation on David's part that God would be faithful to answer this prayer. This is, a, an, again, a, another another element of David's prayer that's a good model or a good example for us. Verses 12 through 15, David speaks as though the prayer has been answered. It says in verse 12, Then our sons will be like plants nurtured in their youth, our daughters like corner pillars that are carved in the palace style. Our storehouses will be full, supplying all kinds of produce. Our flocks will increase by thousands and tens of thousands in our open fields. Our cattle will be well-fed, There'll be no breach in the walls, no going into captivity, no cry of lament in our public squares. Happy are the people with such blessings. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Praise with faith, with the expectation that God will answer. And that when God has his way in our life, it will be for our good fortune. Now, in our day and age with various distortions of the gospel, we have to be careful to note that the blessing of God is not always indicated by the presence of great material wealth or possessions. That's what David describes here. Often the blessing of God comes in different forms. Uh, I, I have known of numerous examples of the blessing of God coming in the removal of material possessions that have become idols in the lives of some and kept them from seeing the glory of God at work in their life. The, the blessing of God comes in various shapes, forms, and fashions. But it's always good. It's always the best. In fact, it's God's best, and God's best always is the best. It's better than our best. David prays with expectation that God would move on his behalf and that the outcome of God's movement in his life would be favorable. And I would add, it, it, it'll be favorable whether it means the increase of the kind of blessings that David describes or blessings that manifest themselves in, in different ways. David uh, gives us again, yet again, an example of, of, of how to pray. I keep going back to that because I think there are people who legitimately struggle to know how to pray. People who say, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I know how to pray. You can go to these psalms and build for yourself a, an outline for prayer. Much of what David exhibits here is really about our attitude toward prayer more than uh, mechanical nuts and bolts type things. Uh, you could take the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives us in the Gospels and use that as an outline, but certainly the spirit of prayer, the kind of attitude that we're to have when we come to God in prayer is clear in the passage before us. He prays with confidence. He prays with humility. He prays with wonder or with worship. He prays with sincerity and certainly with expectation. David prays on the basis of the knowledge that there is a God in heaven who loves us 
and who holds all power. We pray from this side of the resurrection on the basis of the knowledge that there is a God who loves us so much that he gave his only son on our behalf. We, we pray on the basis of a knowledge that Jesus holds all authority both in heaven and on earth. There is no problem that you have faced or will face that a resurrection will not cure. Aren't you glad for that? We ought to be encouraged at that, that the God to whom we pray is alive and well, that he rules and he reigns, and no aspect of our life is beyond his lordship. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for these simple truths that hold us up, God, that are our strength and stay, even on our, our worst of days. God, when we are weak, you are strong. God, as we acknowledge our lowly estate, God, we, we must at the same time reflect on your greatness. You are above and, and beyond us, Lord. You have the whole world in your hands. God, we rest in that. Lord, we trust that whatever is uh, at work in our life, whatever the circumstances of this day and the days ahead might be, that you have a plan and a purpose, that even as those around decision-making intends uh, the consequences or uh, the circumstances for our demise, that you hold the power to turn even wicked intentions for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Lord, there is no circumstance so dire no place so deep that you cannot reach to your people and save to the uttermost. And God, for that, we thank you. Help us, Lord, when we're weak and weary, impatient, confused, or frustrated, to look to you and to, to, to rest, to find our Sabbath rest in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to take just a minute, and uh, we'll have an opportunity here to do any improvement on the sermon that you might like to do. But I, you're going to hear me say uh, a number of times over the next few weeks and even months, uh, kind of give you the nuts and bolts of what the 2020 debt retirement plan looks like. So I think that's important to keep in front of you. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but not everybody comes to church every Sunday. So we're, we're going to over-communicate some of these things so that we make sure that we're all on the same page. And you'll see some things in social media as well. So our game plan, our goal is to retire the current debt that we have, which is about $1.5 million by the end of 2020, which I know is crazy, but just hang in there with me. And so the way that we might be able to reach that goal is by God raising up 450 people from within the Longview Point family or, or from, from without. When I sent the email out to the staff, it went to a former church planning intern, and he emailed me back laughing, and I, t I told him his money was still good at Longview Point. <laughs> um, so, but that God would raise up 450 givers who would commit to $168 a month. That's $2,020 in the year 2020, hence the 2020 plan. And, uh, and if God were to be so pleased to do that, that would see us through uh, that particular goal. And I want this to continue to be um, motivated by our collective ambition to make disciples. That's the goal, to make disciples. 
and retiring the debt would mean liberating um, about $400,000 annually to, uh, to do the work of, of making disciples as a church family. So, so that is the part of the 2020 plan that will be most talked about over the next several weeks. But there are other important aspects of that as well. Like the call to every member evangelizing, every member sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we can have all the money that Bank First across the street holds in its possession. And if we're not telling people about Jesus, we have ceased to be the church. The Lord would be pleased with our being. That is of critical importance. Every person sharing the good news of the gospel. Secondly, every member actively serving in a volunteer role in the church. Every member. There is something for every member of Longview Point to do. We have a place of service for you. Now, I was so encouraged at the number of people that responded and answered the call to service on Sunday morning. And we, we worked through those in staff meeting and prayed for all of those. And I want you to know that there are still volunteer opportunities available to you. We've worked as a church staff to make sure that the process, the, the step between you saying, hey, I'll serve, and you actually serving is as easy as it's ever been. We've worked at, at some length to make sure that that was the case. So uh, find a spot if you've not already. A third uh, aspect is, is every member participating in a connect group. Connect groups, small groups, it, that is the ministry that we have concentrated effort on here as the place where disciples are made. This is where we fulfill that part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, not only are you sharing the gospel with them, but you're teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Small groups at Longview Point is where that happens. So if you're not connected, please, please, please make sure that you're getting connected. And we're working to make getting connected there as simple a process as, as getting connected to service is um, as of now here as well. And one of the, uh, I keep, I, this is not about Brother Wade's autobiographical experience coming to be the pastor at Longview Point. I don't want to turn into that. But one of the great things about coming as a new pastor is being a fresh set of eyes. And I will confess to you that it's a little perplexing knowing where to go and when to go and even what a connect group is. One of my former church members at Matheson was here last Sunday. And, and so anytime someone comes, and they come about every weekend, someone from the old church comes to say hello. So I quiz them. So what was your experience like? What did this look like? And he said, I didn't know what connect group was. I, I mean, I'm kind of a church person, so I had a little bit of an idea. But I, I want you to be sensitive to, to how difficult it can be to guess and to new members at understanding how all that works and what it looks like and try your best to communicate that to them and trust that we're working for ways to over-communicate in those areas as well so that everyone knows and understands what Connect is all about, where they all are and what they're doing and all of that. And I know it's kind of dizzying sometimes. So if you're new and many of you are, just hang in there with us and know we'll, we'll work as best we can to resolve any challenges that you might come up against. But we, we want to make that as easy as we possibly can because we really believe that that's a hugely important part of you becoming uh, the fully formed disciple that God would have for you to be and it's a great place for you to involve yourself in the making of disciple, disciples uh, even beyond you. The gospel came to you because it was headed to somewhere, to somewhere else. And uh, connect groups are a good place to get uh, equipped and readied to take the good news of the gospel to further make disciples. So those are, are the component parts. 
And uh, I'll, I'll reiterate those a number of times over the next several weeks, and I hope you won't grow weary of hearing those component parts, but I think they're critically, 